Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality television, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, game shows, and much more. From Shark Tank to Below Deck to Queer Eye to Naked and Afraid, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted TV with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Pros vs. Joes under my belt. Each week, I talk to colleagues and talent who've made reality television and game shows not just something you watch on TV, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, that was one hell of an introduction. Time to get started. My guest today is a talented producer, development executive, showrunner, writer, director, Currently, he is in an overall deal with the Intellectual Property Company. He's the executive producer of a very funny show for Nickelodeon called The Substitute. Please welcome Todd Hurwitz. Hi. Was that good enough? That was great. I, there was a debate at, uh, before we came on air for your listeners <laughs> about uh, whether I am a veteran or a journeyman. Yeah. And, uh, and Steve nicely settled on talented, which... <laughs> didn't make me sound as old as I am. Well, I mean, I, 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 call, I, I thought I would call myself the veteran, and that way you could just be talented. Fair. You know? Fair. There you go. I mean, a journeyman symbolizes, like, you know, an NBA player who's been on, like, 10 teams. Right. So I am the Robert Parrish <laughs> of reality television. Um, also, your listeners can't see that you have a mustache, which I have not seen on you and now I do feel like you embody a journeyman. Well, yeah, I was going to say, when you're a veteran, yes, or a journeyman, however you want to look at it, you you know, you have to try new looks out in order to make, make it seem like, you know, you're not a veteran or a journeyman. Yes, and so I'm trying this out. You're literally the first person to see it. I mean, and, and thumbs more, up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Two thumbs up. Oh, no. Not everyone can rock a stash, and I am one of those people. I, at least I can go audition for like a cop role or, or a totally. firefighter or maybe an FBI agent. Or a child pornographer. <laughs> yes, yes. I can always. Wow. Wow. This is, we're off to a great start. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about reality television. Okay. Fantastic. All right. So I usually start off with uh, my guests talking about how in the hell you got into unscripted television because everybody usually has a great story or a very unique story. You're from Chicago. You went to the amazing University of Arizona. All right, you're a wildcat. How did you end up in this magical world of reality television? I don't know if it's a great story. Um, it's maybe not a unique story, but it is a story. Uh, I, yeah, I went to University of Arizona and I was a fine art photography major. Okay. I have a degree in fine art photography. 
all of my professors knew that my plan was to come out to Los Angeles and work in film and television. And my last summer, well, actually, I worked while I was at school. There was a there was a, a ranch where they used to shoot a lot of westerns, and there were sound stages okay. out in Tucson, and I. PA'd on a Stephen Baldwin film. No way. Yep, called Under a Hula Moon. It was uh, it was like a ripoff of like a Coen Brothers movie. That's it was awesome. real bad. Um, but I worked on that, and then I got a job my last summer at school working as a uh, production coordinator on local commercials. Like, hey, okay. come on down yeah. at Hal Worthington Ford, all that stuff. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> um, I was the guy that made sure there was craft service on those shoots. Dude, you learned so much doing that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and so then I – literally the day after I graduated, uh, packed up a van with a buddy, moved out to L.A., and uh, had a couple friends out here. One specific friend, a good buddy of mine, Andy Weiss, who was a uh, – actor and writer and he kind of said hey let's just start writing let's just do this and so we wrote and grinded and wrote a screenplay that got some attention and his brother his older brother rob weiss who was uh there was a weird connection with him and me i knew his girlfriend because she was a good friend of mine from high school Rob, real talented director, and then went on to be the head writer of Entourage and head writer of Ballers. Rob read our script, really liked wow, it. okay. Yeah, it was weird. It was like we were – I was 22, and he was 21, and Rob's bringing us into – This is awesome. UTA to meet with – Can the, I ask what it was about? What was yeah, it was about? called The Meyersons, and it was a uh, very, very dysfunctional Jewish family. We followed four stories of very – the three brothers and the father's story all leading up to Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. Okay. Um, very dark, very twisted. We used to say it was uh, Woody Allen meets Quentin Tarantino. Awesome. Um, had kind of a dark, couple dark twists and a lot of crackling dialogue from two obnoxious <laughs> 20-somethings. Um, that movie did ultimately get made. We'll never see the light of day because it was uh, it was a bit of a disaster. Um, it was like an early era video, like film that was shot on video. Got it. And it was DP'd by a guy who I think DP'd mostly film. So he didn't really understand the medium, and the movie just looked like shit. Oh. Um, but we had, like, Leslie Ann Warren and Dan Hedaya and a couple, awesome. like, real actors in it. And it was a cool experience. Um, and Andy and I were writing together for a while, and then we kind of went uh, separately kind of doing small little writing jobs. And then Andy got hired on season two of punk There we go. And I uh, – Knew the show, obviously. Sure. It was, a, it was a cultural phenomenon. And he said, you would love this show. And he said, why don't you come and meet with Jason Goldberg, and uh, who I had known socially through Andy, um, and went in and met. Actually, first person I met with, first television interview I ever had was with Eli Holtzman, ah, who is wow. uh, the current head of industrial media and uh, co-founder of IPC. So that is where I have my overall. Um, so it's kind of all come full circle. Wow. But so my first TV interview was actually with Eli. Eli uh, and I hit it off really well. He recommended me meet with Jason. I met with Jason. I pitched them. <laughs> Speaking of child pornography, uh, the, <laughs> the bit that I pitched uh, that got attention in the room was uh, for punk I, I pitched an idea where a celebrity would go to a school. This is kind of really twisted that I'm currently working on a show <laughs> where celebrities go to I was just going to say, school. yeah, the substitute. Yeah, it's funny. Yes. So I pitched an idea where uh, a celebrity goes to a school 
And the teacher introduces him to the class, and then he leaves the class, and then one kid pulls him aside and says that the teacher touches him inappropriately. Oh, boy. And then the teacher comes back in the room and uh, starts rubbing the kid's shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) This obviously uh, was twisted enough to get me the job, but never in a million years would have ever ever been approved. Um, That said— This was also— a long this time ago. This was a ago. long time ago. <laughs> I don't think in 2020 that no, would fly. this was like 20, this was like 2007. So yeah, so I wound up working on Punked as a writer, moved up to producer, worked on that show for five seasons. And then when I was done, in that period of time, had another film made, which was Lake Placid 2. Yeah. Um, I wrote Lake Placid 2 with a buddy of mine, and that got made. And so that movie actually did see the light of day, and it is unfortunate because it is bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote that? I wrote that. Okay. I co-wrote it with a buddy. So David E. Kelly actually wrote Lake Placid 1. Right. And Lake Placid 2 was written by me. <laughs> hey, that's not a bad person to follow in their footsteps. Totally, totally. Me and my good buddy Howie Miller uh, wrote that. And what was fun was we got actually got reviewed in The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety. And Variety said it was like a piece of garbage. Oh. But Hollywood Reporter said it was like kind of funny and quirky and they got what we were going for. That's great. So you just ignore Variety. Exactly. You tell mom and dad like, hey, just read Hollywood Reporter. Totally. And I kept those two reviews on my wall for a very long time just to remind everyone and remind myself, really, that, like, it doesn't matter what you do. There's always going to be someone who likes it and there's always going to be someone who hates it. And truthfully, I say this in all sincerity, the fact that you wrote a script and it made the, the screen is incredible. Yeah. No, I'm very proud of that. And uh, and and what's funny is, so after five seasons of Punked, I thought, oh, well, I'll get a writing job in TV. Right. And then learned quickly that, like, oh, nobody in TV actually thinks that Punked was written by anyone. Exactly. They just, just magically, Ashton, yeah. you know, could come up with goofy ideas and then say stuff in a microphone. Um, but what I did find out was that coming off of five seasons of Punked, I had like a really high cachet in unscripted television because people were like, wow, you know how to make like material with one take and you know how to plan and prepare and be funny and, you know, do comedy in an unscripted format, which, well, it's funny. The the first job that I got after Punked was a a show for CBS. It was right after the writer strike hit. So it was kind of a perfect time to like not be a writer. And I got hired on a show called Armed and Famous. I uh, remember, yeah. Yeah, Tom Foreman created that show. And at the time, it was supposed to be uh, like a half-hour comedy. Right, and so that was, it was uh, famous like celebrities, right? And they were playing cops. It was was literally celebrities who went to Muncie, Indiana. Right. And were sworn in after a, this was a real thing. Muncie, Indiana needed police officers so badly that they had like a a two-week or a month long, I can't even remember, I think it was a month. I think it was, I think for us, they made it two weeks. But whatever right. it was, they literally swore in. These celebrities. Like Eric Estrada. Eric Estrada, right? Because that was the, he And was Latoya Jackson. Right, yeah, yeah. They made them real police officers, partnered them with real police officers in Muncie and then sent them out to, you know, patrol and solve crimes. And it was supposed to be a comedy. Right. And I was actually hired. They tried to give me the title of comedy producer and I said, just give me the title of producer, <laughs> producer. because if the show isn't funny, funny. <laughs> then I'm going to look like a huge yeah. failure. And ultimately, it turned out to be a good decision because uh, they decided after seeing some of the show – I mean, we did 
like tase. We shot our entire cast with tasers. We convinced them that in order to handle a taser, the state required you to be shot with a taser. Of course. Which was a complete fabrication. So we tased (laughs) LaToya Jackson, which if you go online and look at that at YouTube, it is amazing. But what was amazing was they realized after like seeing a couple rough cuts that like, oh, this isn't a comedy. Like Muncie's got a lot of like sad drunk people and like it's 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 skewing more towards like cops real right. cops yeah and it wasn't that funny but it was good and entertaining and ultimately our half hours we were then turning into hours and it was sure. a whole whole interesting thing jack osborne was one of our he was one Man. of our stars one of our yeah. police officers eric estrada to this day goes back to muncie indiana no every kidding. year to continue to like keep up his status sure. As, As an officer, cop. he yeah. always dreamed of being a cop. It was amazing. Um, so, yeah. So then from there, uh, started creating shows. Um, a good buddy of mine, John Slaughter, and I created a show. We sold a pilot to MTV called the Shower Power Music Hour. That was <laughs> literally. Is, I would have bought that just on the title. Yeah. Line. Well, we had it, we had interest uh, from MTV2. Uh, Justin Rosenblatt at the time was the executive. What, so what's the concept behind the shower the power shower, music hour? Yes, very, very high concept. It was kind of a Japanese, inspired by Japanese game shows. It was finding the country's best shower singers by putting them on a stage with actual showers. We had various rounds. And by the final round, one of the hooks was our two finalists would be, be- completely naked in showers on the stage that were like sort of artfully blurred. The showers were like sure. steamed in the yeah. right places. And uh, and we did this. We shot a pilot. We built a stage. <laughs> and what was so amazing, you know, this was our first, like John and I created this thing. Yeah, and we sure. sold this thing. And we uh, we hired the showrunner, uh, Dan Taberski, who is one of my favorite people in the world. And the three of us, you know, so much preparation. And we of had- course. Um, we had a, a style judge, a singing, a performance judge, and we had a cleanliness judge. A cleanliness, cleanliness judge. Because you had to, wa- you had to because like, you wash had yourself, Because you right? had to shower, full shower, while you sang your song. Hair, too? Hair. Is my, we had, the showers were stocked. Because I would think you're washing your hair wouldn't, like, that would affect the way I sing. Exactly. That's Oof. a challenge. Yeah. A part, and then there was, like, a duet round. And you whoa, whoa, called whoa. Dirty Duets. And there was, like, <laughs> there was parts of the duets where, like, the other team could play dirty tricks on you so they could, like, stop your water or, like, fill your shower up with suds or, like. This, is, had, the, this is the greatest show ever. It was so good. And what was so funny was we showed up on shoot day and – we had a whole huge stage built and we had, you know, a, Is there an audience, a full audience. We had judges, celebrity judges. We had Maya ghetto superstar Maya. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she was, she was our performance judge. We had all like a full thing and we get there and literally the water wasn't working. <laughs> and John and I are watching as I am not exaggerating. A plumber named Sal. Oh my goodness! Is literally on his hands and knees, like with a pipe wrench, trying to fix the water. And we're like watching our hopes and dreams all resting right. in the hands of a plumber named, named Sal. Sal. Of course. <laughs> and he was able to get it fixed, and we were able to do the show. And the pilot uh, generated a lot of buzz, and then ultimately, like, went to the offsites, right? Uh, the of MTV course. offsites, and it was right when MTV was transitioning away. From music, 
Got it. And we and they were transitioning heavy into uh, docu. Docu, so, Laguna Beach, and that's yeah. And we we just got we it didn't happen. <sighs> but it was an amazing experience. Yeah. And then from there, I, I moved into more EP roles, and sure. I you know show ran, and I created a couple other things. John and I created a show together. I created another show with a good friend of mine, Michael Dare, yep. who you also know, yes. uh, called Ghost in the Hood. That Ghost we in the Hood. <laughs> yeah. Ghost in the Hood, we literally sold to four different networks before it finally got made. And it is one of my favorite things I've ever done. And then I moved to New York. I got offered a job working as a current exec and a development exec for Original Media, which then merged with its sister company, True Entertainment. We became Truly Original. Did three years in New York before I finally turned to my wife and said, I think we should go back to L.A. It's snowing and it's yeah. May. Yeah, it's freezing cold. Right? Yeah. And then here I am. And now uh, Eli and Aaron over at IPC uh, lured me into their fray and offered me this wonderful show, The Substitute, which yeah. is uh, adorable. It is. It is. It seems like comedy kind of became something that you found a, a knack for right away. That's not something that reality people are known for. What is it about comedy and reality television that you found attractive and that you that you find that you're that gives you an ability to be good at? Um, I mean, for me, I love the unexpected, and I think so much of comedy comes from you know the unexpected moment, right? And we're all, as reality producers, constantly trying to create environments for our talent where they can be as authentic as possible. Yeah. And, you know, that authenticity can lend itself to uh, tension. That authenticity can lend itself to excitement. That authenticity can lend itself to, you know, a, a fight erupting. For me, I have always kind of gravitated towards the, uh, the more thought-provoking uh, kind of side of what we do but also just I just like to laugh I like to giggle I like to have fun and I think you know whenever you're you're getting someone so caught up in whatever they're doing and and they're being funny without realizing it it's kind of the best and that was really what punk was and like punk kind of gave me this weird little PhD in psychology it just taught me how to build a maze and put like, yeah. our rats in it and move walls around to make sure that they always wind up at the cheese. <laughs> um, and it also, you know, it, it you had to craft an environment that was not only authentic to them, but like we had to make something that fooled the person right. into believing it was real, you know? And a lot of times you're fooling people who've been on sets and recognize certain types of lights and recognize certain, yeah. you know, certain tricks. And it would be more than real. It had to yeah, be, yeah. It had, so, you know, we, as producers, we would walk onto the set and look around and look for what didn't feel real. And, you know, but ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to make people laugh, right? So you want, if this person who's going through this little funhouse that you've created, if it feels real and they're freaking out and they're saying, you know, something funny or silly or, obnoxious like you're laughing and so I think just as a person who's always like grown up on comedy and loves comedy and is just a full-on comedy nerd and you know to me it's like I just like making comedy but I also <laughs> like you know making straight stuff and making yeah. dramatic stuff and is there a favorite prank that you were a part of on punk 
towards the end of the run where it was kind of like we've done everything, we've blown up everything, sure. we've you know damaged cars in so many different ways, and um, we started like playing around with lookalikes, celebrity lookalikes. Nice. And um, we had a Tom Cruise lookalike. Ooh. And we had a skateboarder, this guy Bucky Lazik, who was like a, a you know champion, X game champion okay. skateboarder. And his wife and him, his wife was the accomplice, and his wife brought him to a restaurant. It was actually Ashton's restaurant, which should have been a red flag, but I don't know if he knew that. And we had in a VIP room, we had a Tom Cruise lookalike who lured Bucky Lazik's wife into the, the the VIP room. And then when he went to try to get her, the the guard, security guard wouldn't let him in. Oh, wow. And so now he's watching his wife be charmed by what appears to be, be Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise and then ultimately sees it turn and she throws a drink in his face. <laughs> and this was during the uh, the couch jumping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was like when he Oprah. started dating Katie Holmes. And right. so Tom Cruise was like very much in the, uh, in, the, in the media and in the zeitgeist. And so he's watching, he's watching, he watches his wife throw a drink in Tom Cruise's face and then comes back to the table and is like, he's a pig. And he's like, what did he say? She's like, I don't want to talk about it. And then we sent out Tom Cruise's assistant to demand an apology from her, <laughs> at which point he lost it. And then uh, we sent out the fake Tom Cruise to jump on the couch and reveal <laughs> that it was uh, a prank. You know, ultimately what you're trying to do on all of our shows is tap into your talent's emotion. Right. And if you get them emotional, the logical side falls off. And so if you're being emotional, you're not thinking about like, oh, the cameras are on me. Do I sound sure. stupid or do I look this way or am I being funny or am I not? So like I'm punked when I would see a person sunk, it was the best. And then, you know, on everything I've done since, whenever I see a person just so immersed and tapped into whatever emotion they're really feeling, I'm like, yes, this is good television. This is that authenticity yeah. that we all search for. And you obtain that, you mine for it by crafting something that taps into people's emotions. Yeah. And then the viewers like feel that and respond to that and are like, oh, that's real. Cause you know, like our viewers nowadays, they're all, smart. Yeah. And all they're looking for is ways to poke holes. Ugh, yes. And ways to roll their eyes. And so if we can give them something authentic, then we kind of like take rob them of that ability. You've now gone from pranking celebrities to pranking little kids. With celebrities. <laughs> With celebrities. <laughs> it does come full circle. It really does. Totally. So you're now executive producing The Substitute for Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really funny show. A celebrity dresses up, goes undercover into a classroom, and then... And the, the key here is we have literally the best makeup special effects team in the game. Really good. Yeah, we have a guy yeah. named Tony Gardner and his team, and these guys are so incredible. Uh, they were actually the guys that did Sasha Baron Cohen's show, oh, wow. which is where I had heard of them. So I immediately called Tony, who I've never met, and said, hey, like, is there a world where you would do this show? And he had heard the idea. And, you know, at the end of the show, we do give the schools that we prank a check for $25,000. So there's a nice warm feeling at the end of every show. But so we make these celebrities, like, unrecognizable to the point where, like, they'll while they're getting their makeup on, once they're done, they'll like FaceTime their mom or their, you know, <laughs> a sibling. And they'll be like, I, you look nothing like you and like a crazy person. Um, so yeah, so then we take the celebrities fully transformed 
and then we put them in three different classrooms of kids as substitute teachers. We give them crazy scenarios, crazy characters, all sorts of props, and let them kind of have at it with the kids for three different classes, pranking them, getting really fun reactions from the kids. And then at the end of the day, we bring all the kids to an auditorium and we play them a video that kind of reveals what's going on. Right. And then our celebrity comes running out and gives the school a check for 25 grand. And it's it's a really fun show. And it is like, as you know, a lot of the shows that uh, sometimes we have to make are challenging and also you feel a little gross. Take a second shower. Yes. <laughs> a second shower. Yeah. This yes. is uh this is definitely not one of those shows. Yeah. Everyone who works on it, all the celebrities, everyone just has a blast because it really is all built to uh to give the kids kind of a, a cool experience and also to help out schools, which is a great thing. Yeah, it's great. I saw the one with the with the Bella twins, which was really funny. Who uh, who have you worked with that you really enjoyed? Which one of the celebrities or pair of the celebrities? Everyone's been great. You know, it's funny. We've had um, three different uh, pieces of talent who were, like, not, uh, like, were kids. We did Jojo Siwa, who I think is 17. We did Asher Angel, who is 16. And we did Johnny Orlando, who I think is also 16. And so it's interesting because you're working with these kids yeah. and you put them in full prosthetics and you make them look like adults. And right. then the rest of the day when you're working with them and you're you know, interfacing with them and you're giving them notes and you're walking them through the segments and you're blocking and you're doing all that stuff, they look like adults. <laughs> And so in your mind, you're working with Treating an adult. Treating them like an adult. And yeah. then at the end of the day, when they remove all their makeup again, you're like, oh, my God, I forgot you were a child. <laughs> um, but they've all been great. I mean, everyone's been great. Uh, John Cena was amazing, like really, really impressive. Uh, Sean White showed up. And wow. The, t- he, the flying tomato. The tomato. And he showed up and he – I don't like – you know, he's a busy guy and he's of like, course. A, you know, Olympic champion and he's got a lot on his plate and he showed up ready to go. But he was like, oh, I'm playing three characters. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I was like, yeah, we sent you like the creative like a month ago. And he's like, oh, man. I was like, we'll do this. I got you. <laughs> we'll walk you through it. And he crushed it. Nice. Um, yeah, everyone's been great. I really uh, – Neo, who – it's what's interesting. This is kind of funny. Uh, three people that we've done, I've punked. So I punked John <laughs> Cena. I punked wow. Leo. Yeah. And I also punked Sean White. And what was great about Sean White was the actor who actually punked him, like our improv actor, uh, when he was a kid. We did a whole like remote control plane thing that crashed into yeah. a conduit box. And like he, so the actor, Matt Wheeler, we brought him back on the substitute to play a janitor. So Sean and him got to actually work together, and it was really fun. So yeah, so it's uh, it's a great show. It's honestly, it's like one of the one of the most fun gigs I've had in a long time. Nice. Now, how has hidden camera or prank changed? Obviously, since I mean, Punk was one of kind of that first. That I mean, candid camera obviously was the original, but then Punk kind of took it to the next level. Yeah. How have things changed in terms of executing the Hidden Camera Prank show since Punk to now? You know, what's funny is um, cameras have gotten smaller, obviously. Um, but what's changed is sort of people's awareness of cameras. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And like people's awareness is just way more heightened. We get really creative with the ways that we hide mics, but you don't 
think about things like, oh, well, hide a microphone in a cone, like in an orange cone. Right. And you forget that, like, kids are kids. And, like, next thing you know, some kid's just tapping on the cone because they're just, like, have nervous energy. And you're like, oh, great. The mic is now, like, completely <laughs> unusable. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, the technology, you know, little things have changed. But in terms of the psychology, it's all, all the, same. the same. And so – you know, the hardest part on the substitute for me in terms of, like, what's changed is, like, I'm punked. You know, it's 50 against one. Right. Right? So it's, like, you show up. You're the celebrity. The person with you is in on it. And every person that you're going to encounter is in on it. And all the producers behind the scenes know what's going on and are, like, looking on, you know, nine cameras and at every angle and are seeing every little subtlety. So it's all – it's 50 against one. Right. And – we have a home field advantage because 99 times out of 100, we're bringing you a place you've never been and are putting you in a car that you've never been. Um, with kids, with the substitute and these kids, it's it's like it's a little more they, even. They're on their home turf. They're on their home turf, and there's 10 of them. So, you know, all it takes is for one kid to kind of look around and maybe see something out of place. And then it becomes our job as producers to kind of like figure out a way to key on that kid. So suddenly that kid, what we do, um, thankfully no children will ever be listening to this podcast because I'm (laughs) going to give away a secret. But what we do is we talk to the schools. We have, you know, the principals are in the control room with us. And we're like, hey – what are threats that we can use if kids get unruly, right? So, like, in in one school, a teacher will be like, hey, if the kids ever get out of line, just literally say slam position, and they will all – And so our teacher, our substitute, our celebrity literally goes slam position, and all the kids just snap to attention. Slam position. And I'm like, this is amazing. This is like a superpower. So they all have their little Pavlovian ways of keeping these kids in line, and so we – know those and use those and we have our little threats that we can use if kids start to get a little like unruly in order to kind of like get them back in line so it's uh you know i would say the only thing that's really changed is the playing field for me on this one i mean everything else is all the same psychology you got to keep people busy you got to keep people engaged you got to keep people reacting because if they're not engaged and they're not reacting they're looking around going this is weird and that guy looks weird. And, like, <laughs> I think he might have just thrown up. And right. Teachers don't usually throw up. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So. In terms of where we're headed now with Unscripted and everything, who's doing things well? What shows do you like uh, that you feel like, okay, I, I can see why this is doing well? What are the trends that you see as being successful um, versus some things that maybe uh, you think aren't working? Um. It's funny because <laughs> there's a show right now that my wife is obsessed with um, and that I'll watch with her, and it feels very authentic. Okay. I'm intrigued. And I don't know if it is authentic because it's in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Terrace House. This is a show that I don't, I don't know wow. if, if you've heard no. of. It's, it's one of those, like, it's, it's mm. started to get a lot of heat. It's basically just the real world. Um, Where can I find it? In Japan. It's on Netflix. Okay. It's all in Japanese. But what's different about it versus um, like the American real world is um, there's like a panel of, I guess they're Japanese celebrities who uh, kind of have like a commentary. Um, And, you know, I'm sure 
like to a foreign audience who watches like a very heavily soft scripted or or guided you know American docuseries, they probably think, oh, that's you know Americans are like that, and that's probably how they're. So I don't know, Um, but I do like that show. I also uh, recently caught a couple episodes of Rhythm. Is it Rhythm and Rhythm and Flow? Yeah, and I thought that was um, very refreshing, very well done. I inherently have a hard time with. Um, talent competitions. Yeah. Just because I think it's like, you know, short changes, a huge part of the process of like building and nurturing talent, which is like, you know, going on the road and going in the studio and, you know, if it's a comic or if it's a musician or whatever. But that said, that show is very vibrant and entertaining. It was different. And it's different and it's, you know, it's got, you know, real language and it feels, I'm doing quotes, it feels authentic. Um, well, they gave it a new look. They didn't put yeah. it for, for people who don't know. Rhythm and Flow is like a it's a hip hop competition show. It's on Netflix, and they definitely the producers made a decision not to put it on a big shiny floor mm-hmm. uh, like like The Voice. Yeah, and it's got you know Cardi B, and it's got Chance the Rapper, and it's got Ti as hosts, which gives it credibility. Yes. A, lot, it's, a lot of money into the town. Yes, for sure. And uh, and it's you know there are moments where it feels produced but those moments like work um you know i watch a lot of documentary so do i yeah Yeah. my wife is is producing like a four-part documentary series right now and and she's only been in the business for a few years and she has worked uh on significantly cooler stuff than me (laughs) uh she's done a couple hbo series she's done a showtime series she's doing a lot of the more premium stuff and you know she has a whole different set of challenges and sort of you know, I tend to like to watch the stuff that she does. That she, and does. she tends to like to watch <laughs> the stuff that I do. Um, so it's a good relationship. Yeah. Though. Well, but now I feel like more and more we're we're finding commonality with like you know really good like premium doc series. Yes. And you know I think that's obviously like changed the face of our business. Like going way way back. Yeah. When I graduated college, I was making a documentary about the Bay Area hip hop scene, and I spoke to someone uh, who was like a investor in documentaries and his vice was like don't do a documentary there's no money in it right and it's funny that like you know 20 plus years yeah. later now it's like everybody's the, doing oh and it's the one thing that I, the biggest regret i have is not making that documentary yeah. because you know it would have maybe put me in a different place maybe sure. i'd be in the exact same place i don't know i know i i completely agree i think doing like first of all i've watched a documentary a week, if not more, and I do think it's a it's opened up a different way of telling stories. Whether it is a four part series or a six part series, or it's a feature, you know, hour and a half doc. Just watching Aaron Hernandez doc, the, the doc series, you know, that's a story that you and I, as football fans, we thought, you know, we thought we knew, and then here's Blackfin goes and makes their version of the story. Then Oxygen goes and makes their version of the story, and then Discovery ID goes tells their version of the story, which. Well, and what's funny is I watched none of them and I just listened to a podcast. (laughs) And there you go. And we can consume all or none of them. (laughs) Um, But I do, you know, it's funny. I I was thinking on the way here because I listen, you know, in the car, it's podcasts. And I remember when I was in New York, I would see people on the subway, like watching television on their phones. Right. And like watching like, not like crappy television, watching like big budget premium television on their phones. And I started thinking about how, like what will probably be a sea change for our businesses when self-driving cars become prevalent and you can, yeah. instead of listening to a podcast in your ears, watch TV in your car. You can watch like on the way to and from work, you can watch you know yeah. two episodes of a show 
And if it's a you know ten episode show that week, you can watch a whole season you, of a show. I've watched cuts on my yeah. phone. Oh, all the time. You know? Yeah, and and you know, so I, I yeah, I mean, I think we're totally headed in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'll just ask from from a development standpoint: Are you finding things to be more challenging now than they were a couple years ago? Are you finding things to be just as challenging? Has anything changed for you? Um, you know what's funny is uh, when John Slaughter and I pitched Shower Power Music Hour. Which now is my favorite title ever. (laughs) Well, the idea came to us because Fuse was looking for a companion to uh, Pants Off, Dance Off. And our agents were like, come up with something. And we were like banging our heads against the wall. And one of us turned to the other and said, what about singing in the shower? And we were both like, that's it. And then, you know, we developed out this format on paper. We brought the format in. We pitched it to Fuse. They loved it. And then our agents were like, let's bring this to other places. Yeah. So we brought it to MTV2. Justin Rosenblatt was like, I love this. And we just pitched it. Paper and John and I were like, you know, two guys yeah. from from Punked and um and and Justin said, "Let's go for it." And that idea of like just walking in with, with like papers. with paper. Forget about it. Well, what's interesting is I feel like in some regard we're back to that. Like we've kind of like everyone now knows that like I can make you a great piece of tape. It still doesn't mean it's a good idea. Right. So I think what's changed um, is, you know, who is pitching it and the fact that like if I'm pitching something that's funny, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm, and I've got, you know, the, the big guns of IPC with me. Well, they know that those guys are going to make sure it's a quality product. It's quality. And they know that if it's supposed to be funny, that I'm going to make it funny because they've, seen me do it seen you do it so I think um, that matters a little bit more you know for a long time I felt like showrunners in reality TV were kind of an afterthought and it was like all right, we sold the show All right, who's going to run it and now I feel like um, that's becoming less and less people have been burned by you know first time showrunners or green showrunners or showrunners who talk a talk but can't deliver and I feel like now, you know, having a reputation as like being a guy who can who can do a pretty good job and is creative and good to work with and, you know, gets it done on, on time and on budget. I feel like that, like uh, those credentials, you know, help me a little bit more in marketplace now because people are like, oh, you know, on Ghost in the Hood. Yeah. Um, when David Stefano was who From was the we ult- right. Yeah. From we? David was ultimately the network executive who bought it and got it. To, to series. We had sold it originally to Spike, then we had sold it to BET, and we had sold it in the middle to Oxygen in sort of a weird way. And David Stefano ultimately was one who bought it, and a big reason he bought it was because he knew that Odair and I would make it great and make it funny, because he had seen what Mike had done with Duck Dynasty, and he had seen what I did with, uh, with uh, Town of the Living Dead that he was uh, the production executive on, and he was like, I know you guys will make this great. And so I think we're we're at a place now where it's not just the idea, it's not just the talent, it's also like who's going to make this. The who's, trust. Yeah, it's who's going to bring this to life. So I think that's the one place where I feel like things – like nothing's easy. This is literally the hardest business, <laughs> like, you know, the re- most ridiculous business. And, you know, we all have a million stories of like yes. coulda, shoulda, woulda or sold and then unsold or whatever. But I feel like – there is um, a premium now on the person who's going to bring this to life. And, you know, as a person who does that, like, I think that that is one area where, like, I can add value. Yes, I could go make a great sizzle for you or I can, you know, do a great right. deck. 
But I think when people are like, oh, who's going to make this? And they're like, oh, you know, Herbert's is going to do it. Yeah. Hopefully that helps. I hope. I don't know. Hopefully they go sweet and not, <laughs> oh, God. That journeyman. <laughs> No, there. No, I thought I was talented. You're yes. the journeyman. I'm the journeyman with the mustache. <laughs> the veteran. <laughs> and then we come full circle. My friend, thank you. I thank you. It. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. All right. That is going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. Please remember to rate it with five stars and write a question if you have one so I can answer it on the show. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for use of the studio. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.